take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and tokettes And non-token lovers of liberty It is Friday, May 27th, 2016 And it's got to be 420 Somewhere in the world Congratulations, everyone. We made it to the weekend, and one of the best weekends, Memorial Day weekend, the symbolic start of summer here in the United States of America, although you wouldn't know it here in beautiful legal potland, Oregon, looking out over the south waterfront where dark gray clouds are uh, perched overhead. We're going to get a lot more rain this weekend, I have a feeling, but nevertheless, it is the beginning of the summer season. The big movie blockbusters are all coming out, and uh, it's going to be a great summer for marijuana legalization, and we're going to be covering it for you all summer long here on the Russ Belville Show as we continue the Legalize America Tour 50 by 50, and uh, our next stop is uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale area, heading to uh, the Arizona desert for the beginning of summer. There, I'll get my, my summertime dose there, that's for sure. But I'm uh, going to be down there for three days with the Cannabis Radio crew and then making my way up to Aspen, Colorado over the weekend for the Aspen Legal Seminar, uh, the normal Aspen Legal Seminar, which, of course, culminates in the Saturday cookout at Hunter S. Thompson's Owl Farm. I'll be uh, bringing my base up there and getting involved in the jam session and of course i'll be telling you all about it on subsequent shows lots of stuff coming up as far as june goes in the schedule uh in addition to that aspen legal seminar the following weekend is the michigan cannabis cup will be out there near flint michigan actually out in clio at the uh, clio auto speedway for the michigan cannabis cup and then the following week it's off to the cannabis world conference and business expo at the jacob javits center in uh new york city again so we heading back to new york for the middle of june and then the weekend back to the bay area san francisco uh the cow palace for the high times northern california cannabis cup on june 18th and 19th that'll be followed by the cannabis business summit and expo with the uh NCIA, National Cannabis Industries Association, on the 20th through 22nd in Oakland, California. And then I'll be taking a week off at the end of June because I'm headed to Boise, Idaho to visit my parents for their 50th anniversary. That's right, 50 years my folks have been married and uh, as good a time to take a week off as any, if you ask me. We'll go visit the folks out there in Red State, Idaho. It's kind of my... uh, tolerance break, if you will. Now, coming up on today's show, all sorts of great stuff. We've got uh, some cannabis radio news for you. We'll catch up on the headlines. And then after that, uh, we're going to switch things up a little bit. We've got some stupid prohibition story to tell you from the state of Iowa that uh, a huge violation of Steinborn's law. We'll tell you all about it. And then we'll have some reefer madness debunked. We've got some audio from the police commissioner in New York City uh, who's exhibiting some extreme signs of reefer madness. We need to bring them the cure. So that's what we're going to take care of right after uh, the 20 after break. And then a very special activist agenda to close out the show. 
dedicated to Michael Kennedy, who uh, passed away. He was the longtime legal counsel for High Times Magazine and a, uh, a stalwart defender of civil liberties. He was a past president of the uh, Criminal Defense Lawyers and a friend of the show. Um, back in 2010, uh, Michael Kennedy heard my presentations on the Box Canyon of medical marijuana and since then had been a huge fan of my work. And I, I really believe without Michael Kennedy's support, I probably wouldn't be as far ahead in my career as I am. So we're going to give that tribute to you from the uh, normal conference where Jerry Goldstein won the first ever Michael J. Kennedy Human Rights Award. That's all coming up on the Russ Belville Show. This is the Russ Belville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Tommy Chong is ready to cut through the smoke and change the tone of Tilk Radio. You know, during Dance with the Stars, I started feeling discomfort. Yeah. And not only that, I was doing these old mountain smells. And yeah. it was kind of embarrassing because, you know, the, all the Dancing with the Stars crew, the cast and crew, you know, they were all young kids. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden, this old guy would come along and do one of those silent farts, you know, that you don't know you're doing it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you smell, and everybody go, what the hell smells? And, you know, and you knew it was me. And, and so I'd scurry off to the bathroom, you know. And that's when I knew that there was something wrong. The Tommy Chung Podcast, only on CannabisRadio.com Welcome to my world. You're not high. You're listening to the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Okay. Maybe you're high, too. With over six years of experience in the industry, New Era CPAs is one of the nation's leading cannabis accounting firms, helping hundreds of growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies with their tax, legal, and business strategies. New Era CPAs offices cover the West Coast from Seattle to San Diego, and their skilled team is always available to help you take your business to the next level. Visit NewEraCPAs.com for more info and set up a consultation. Welcome to the New Era. It's time for the Cannabis Radio News. Covering the latest headlines in consumer cannabis, medical marijuana, and industrial hemp. Cannabis Radio News is now available exclusively at CannabisRadio.com. Now your marijuana headlines in 4 minutes and 20 seconds. This is Cannabis Radio News. This is your Cannabis Radio News for Friday, May 27, 2016. Toronto, Canada. 
Police on Thursday raided 43 medical marijuana dispensaries in Toronto, seizing hundreds of pounds of cannabis and making 90 arrests. Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders said the crackdown was on stores believed to be selling marijuana to recreational consumers. He also alleged that the shops were selling improperly labeled cannabis products that could be seen as a public safety risk. Protesters countered that Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has pledged to legalize recreational marijuana soon throughout the entire country. Medical marijuana is legal in Canada, but only sales by mail through providers licensed by Health Canada are legal. Storefronts like the ones raided Thursday are not legal. East Los Angeles, California. Presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders once again made his pitch for voters to legalize marijuana in California this November. Speaking to a rally in East Los Angeles, Sanders told the crowd, quote, it makes sense to legalize marijuana at this particular point. So if I were here in your state, I would vote yes on that issue, end quote. Last fall in Las Vegas, when asked about that state's legalization initiative already on the ballot, Sanders said, quote, I suspect I would vote yes, end quote. In Santa Monica, Sanders referred to the California Adult Use of Marijuana Act, still yet to qualify for the ballot, saying, quote, I tell you that if I lived in your state, I would vote for that initiative, end quote. Phoenix, Arizona. A doctor is upset after the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Phoenix blocked her from giving a lecture about marijuana's effects on veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. This summer, Dr. Sue Sisley is conducting a study on PTSD and medical marijuana that is funded by a Colorado marijuana research grant. Although the Drug Enforcement Administration approved her work, the Phoenix VA Medical Center told Sisley she couldn't give a presentation there. Medical marijuana is legal in Arizona, but it's still a federal crime to possess pot. The VA Center isn't allowed to promote or recruit veterans for marijuana research, said Dr. Samuel Agayo, Associate Chief of Staff for Research at Phoenix Hospital. Congress recently passed legislation that would allow VA doctors to discuss medical marijuana with veterans. Agayo said the center might reconsider Sisley's lecture if that bill is signed into law. San Francisco, California. Former NFL running back Ricky Williams is a partner and spokesperson for Power Plant Fitness, a Bay Area gym believed to be the first to allow for cannabis use during workouts. Williams, known for his outspoken support for medical marijuana following an NFL career tormented by drug test failures, has partnered with Jim McAlpine, the founder of 420 Games, a series of 4.2-mile runs meant to change public perceptions of cannabis consumers. South Royalton, Vermont. Black drivers stopped by Vermont State Police were five times more likely to be searched than white drivers, even though contraband was more likely to be found when white motorists were searched, according to a report on five years of traffic stop data. The findings were presented Tuesday evening in a meeting of the state police senior command staff and an anti-bias committee of police employees and residents. The presentation did not include raw numbers of African Americans or members of other minority groups searched, but provided the total number of stops and the percentages by race and ethnicity. The percentage of stops of whites that resulted in searches was 1.1. The percentage involving black drivers was 5.1. Contraband was found 80% of the time in the searches of whites and 68.5% of the time in the searches of blacks. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Police say a Louisiana man accused of making his 8- and 10-year-old relatives smoke marijuana faces cruelty charges. Baton Rouge police tell the advocate that Jason Lewis Taylor rolled marijuana blunts and provided them to the young boys on several occasions, instructing the children to smoke them. 
The police report says the eight-year-old boy was taken to the hospital in February after being told to smoke weed. The child later tested positive for marijuana. Police say both children said the 29-year-old Taylor allegedly smoked marijuana in front of them on several occasions. Taylor was arrested Wednesday on two counts of cruelty to juveniles and one count of illegal use of a controlled substance in the presence of a juvenile. This has been your Cannabis Radio News for Friday, May 27, 2016. I'm Russ Belville. From dabs to chibas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary. CannabisRadio.com Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Georgia. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. Alcohol prohibition didn't work in the 1920s, and marijuana prohibition isn't working today. It's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. It's the fair thing to do. For more information, contact Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at norml.org. You're listening to Radical Russ on the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is proudly sponsored by the Marijuana Business Association. The MJBA, called by NBC News the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, is the fastest-growing business association in the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. As a public service, the Russ Belleville Show reminds you that smoking marijuana does not make one stupid. However, some stupid people do smoke marijuana, and Prohibition is always waiting for another victim. Learn your lesson from today's Stupid Prohibition Stories. With your Stupid Prohibition Stories, I'm old-timey 1920s radio reporter Freddie Farrakh. This just in from Newton, Iowa. An Iowa couple faces child endangerment and drug charges after police say they were caught riding in a vehicle driven by a 13-year-old. The Newton Daily News reports that 51-year-old Paul Deaton and 48-year-old Jacqueline Deaton of Colfax were arrested after the vehicle was stopped around 2.15 p.m. Sunday. Authorities say a Jasper County Sheriff's deputy noticed a heavy odor of... Marijuana coming from the vehicle, and Paul Deaton reached behind a seat and grabbed a pipe along with four grams of marijuana. In addition to the child endangerment child charge, Paul Deaton was charged with possession of a controlled substance and possession of drug paraphernalia. Jacqueline Deaton faces additional charges of possession of 
marijuana and permitting an unauthorized driver. Online court records did not list an attorney. I'm Freddy Farrakh with your sounds like freddie has fallen off a cliff at the end of that segment doesn't it oh my god okay so let's see if we got this straight um so you're you're a 51 year old guy (laughs) and you and your 48 year old wife decide you want to hot box the car bad decision right there you know right off the bat right but then somewhere in the in the process of figuring this out you decide the thing to do would be to let the 13-year-old drive the car. Uh, okay. <laughs> See, there's a very important rule that we have uh, on our little uh, road that we're all traveling here, something that we like to call Steinborn's Law. Jeff Steinborn is a criminal defense attorney up in Washington State. He was for a long time on the normal board of directors. And Steinborn's Law says... Only break one law at a time. So if you're going to be a marijuana consumer in a state like Iowa that is very harsh as far as marijuana consumers go, then only break one law at a time. If you got weed on you, don't be smoking it. And don't be smoking it in the car. And don't be smoking it in the car with a 13-year-old driving. You're breaking four laws right there. <laughs> but this is something that, you know, we can all learn from. We tell these stupid prohibition stories in the hopes that the listeners out there will recognize these crucial mistakes in judgment and not make them ourselves. Don't smoke weed in your car. Now, I know people have violated this rule. I know I've violated this rule, but it is the biggest risk you can take as a cannabis consumer. Really, if you're smart about it and you keep your cannabis use low profile, especially if you're white, there's very little risk that you're going to get caught with marijuana. If you're not carrying around big stinky sacks with you all the time, If you're not leaving the house all smelling like weed or dressed up, you know, for a pot party. And again, if you're white, you can generally go through your life without ever getting busted for weed. Paul and Jacqueline, by the way, are white. In case you're wondering, I looked up the uh, photos, the booking photos. You can get away with it if you don't make a bunch of stupid mistakes. So obey Steinborn's rule. If you're not wanting to get busted, especially if you're living someplace, a state that starts with uh, a vowel, <laughs> are usually not the good ones, uh, with the exception of Oregon. Oregon's pretty pretty nice right now. Alaska's pretty nice, too. But uh, with those exceptions, <laughs> if your state, state starts with a vowel, you'll want to be careful about your marijuana use. The uh, other thing to take out of this is, the, of course, the 13-year-old driving. And you, and this is Sunday at two fifteen. This is like in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> it's a Sunday afternoon. What was going through their mind to make them think that was necessary? 
It's not even the old excuse of the drunk driver who has the kid. Well, the kid's, you know, more sober than me. Or maybe that was their excuse. He was the most sober driver they could find. Uh, I don't know how they do things in Iowa. All right, everybody, that sound means that it's 20 after the hour, 420 in Denver, Colorado, where marijuana is legal but not yet equal. Check out Denver Normal online and help them with their public use initiative to be able to create create safe spaces for marijuana consumption among adults. We're back with uh, some reefer madness debunking in the NYPD after this. Legal to listen to all over the world. We're just not sure about France. Cannabisradio.com The cannabis business industry is growing. Business is booming. And as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Today, it takes more than just being a good grower. Do you have the resources to market and handle this ever-changing business landscape? Let Canna Management Corporation help you grow your canna business with our vast resources and experience to make your business a fully functional service company. Financial management, HR, sales, marketing, efficiency, and more. CMC has the experience and the expertise to improve your business and help you better meet the demands of your clients and customers. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Coming soon to a city near you, Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. Get all your cannabis accounting, legal, and compliance questions answered by their knowledgeable panel of industry experts who want to help your cannabis boom. Whether you're a grower, dispensary operator, or a newcomer to the field, your cannabis needs Cannabis Finance Boot Camp. For information on upcoming events, visit CannabisFinanceBootCamp.com. Marijuana is an addictive drug which produces in its users insanity, criminality, and death. Marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. If the hideous monster Frankenstein came face-to-face with the monster of marijuana, he dropped it from fright. You know, it's not easy countering seven decades of propaganda in a two-hour show, but let's try. It's time for the Russ Belleville Show's Reefer Madness Debunked. 
Today I want to take a listen to some reefer madness coming out of New York City, and in particular the police commissioner there, Bill Bratton, William Bratton. He recently appeared on the John Katsimatidis show, uh, also known as Cat's Roundtable, uh, this AM 970 in New York City. And they were having a discussion about crime rates in the United States and uh, heroin and the rising overdose rates and all of that. And strangely, Bratton, the commissioner of the NYPD, took the discussion into marijuana and how we're legalizing marijuana throughout the country. Let's give a listen here from uh, Cat's Roundtable. This was uh, on the 22nd. And Staten Island, uh, we have even more significant problems than several other boroughs. So uh, we uh, uh, had CompStat uh, on last Friday that focused very specifically on this drug issue involving heroin. Interestingly enough here, however, in New York City, most of the violence we see, violence around drug uh, trafficking, is involving marijuana. And I, I, we, I have to scratch my head as we're seeing many states wanting to legalize marijuana and more liberalization of policies. Here in New York, uh, the violence we see associated with drugs, uh, the vast majority of it is around the issue of marijuana, which is ironic considering the explosion in the use of heroin now in the city. So that's the NYPD commissioner <laughs> saying that the vast majority of drug violence that he sees in the city has to do with marijuana. And when I first heard that, I thought of the bully who grabs the weakling and grabs his grabs him by the wrist and makes him punch himself with his own fist and uh, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. <laughs> right. It's like Commissioner Bratton. You do realize the reason that there is violence associated with the marijuana trade in any capacity whatsoever is because it is prohibited. Come on out here to Portland, Oregon, and come into a pot shop sometime. And what you'll find is a whole lot of marijuana trade going on and no violence associated with it. You'll find the same thing in Denver, Colorado. You'll find the same thing in Seattle, Washington. You'll find the same thing in four states now and in plenty of medical marijuana states where medical transactions are going on. And the only violence associated with it is the occasional robbery that happens because, once again, prohibition keeps that green, leafy substance in the price ranges of fine metals and gemstones. If this were completely a legal crop, absolutely 100% legal crop, and its pricing, even with sin taxes, were to get down to 20 30 even $50 an ounce, a lot of the violence that you see associated with the marijuana trade would up and disappear. And the other thing about Commissioner Bratton's uh, perspective on this issue, to say most of the violence we see around drugs has to do with marijuana, that is because most of the drugs are marijuana. Most of the drugs being used, most of the people using drugs have to do with marijuana. So, yeah... If there's violence in the drug trade as a whole, which there is, even with cocaine and heroin and meth, there's, there's violence in any drug trade, in any prohibitionary trade. If the majority of that trade is in marijuana, then guess what? The majority of the violence would also be associated with the marijuana.
Now, Commissioner Bratton's gotten roundly criticized uh, on this issue. Morgan Fox of the Marijuana Policy Project uh, had a statement saying, it seems to me that that statement could only be true if you just count the mere presence of marijuana. The mere presence of a small amount of marijuana at a crime scene or on the person of someone involved in a violent crime does not mean that marijuana was involved in or the motivation for that crime. Out at uh, Reason.com, Jacob Sullum writes, quote, That has to count as one of the most clueless statements on drug policy by a prominent public figure since Hillary Clinton declared that drugs are too profitable to be legalized. Like Clinton, New York City Police Chief Bratton is presenting an argument for legalization as an argument against it. Justice Clinton does not seem to understand that prohibition enriches criminals by making drugs artificially expensive and dropping the business into their laps. Bratton does not seem to understand that marijuana-related violence in New York City is a predictable product of the black market. But this isn't the first time, by the way, for Bill Bratton on this. Uh, Last year, 2015, he said, quote, The seemingly innocent drug that's been legalized around the country. In this city, people are killing each other over marijuana more so than anything that we had to deal with in the 80s and 90s with heroin and cocaine. In some instances, it's a causal factor, but it's an influence in almost everything that we do here. End quote. Well, I got a solution for you, Commissioner. Just legalize it already. End the pretense that you're stopping anyone in New York City or anywhere from using marijuana. Hell, I was smoking a joint in broad daylight two blocks away from the United Nations as they discussed international drug treaties that forbid me from doing just that. Prohibition is a failure. It's a moral failure. It's a criminal justice failure. It's a public policy failure. It's a failure in every regard except enriching the prison guards union, the cops, the drug testers, the rehabs, and protecting big pharma, big timber, big oil, and so many others from the competition of natural cannabis. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a special salute to Michael Kennedy and Jerry Goldstein winning the first ever Michael Kennedy Normal Human Rights Achievement Award. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Being green is good. Growing green is good. Making green is great. CannabisRadio.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. This is Cannabis Facts from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. Supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., poised to lead America's hemp revolution at HempInc.com. In 1937, the second most prescribed medicine, marijuana, was banned. It wasn't about marijuana. 
the paper, oil, and chemical industries lobbied to end hemp farming. No longer labor-intensive, an acre of hemp produced more quality paper than four acres of trees. Plastics and fibers could be produced from a plant. Hemp can even produce ten times the energy of today's ethanol. As marijuana prohibition ends, many states now allow farmers to again grow hemp. This was Cannabis Facts from the Silvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to process America's hemp crop at hempinc.com. This is the Russ Belleville Show, annoying Kevin Sabat since 2012. Are you playing an acoustic guitar but want to be louder without an amp? Try a resonator guitar. The fingerboard extension has national resophonic and other resonators, square necks, and round necks. Stop by the fingerboard extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Go wild hog in the woods. Activism begins with ACT. The Rush Belleville Show features the stories of hardworking grassroots activists working for an end to prohibition in today's activist agenda. Today in the activist agenda, we do a special salute to a man who meant so much to the cannabis community that maybe a lot of people in the cannabis community have no idea. Uh, and that man was Michael J. Kennedy. He was the counsel for High Times Magazine since its founding over 40 years ago, defending uh, Tom Fursad, the uh, marijuana smuggler who made High Times possible, and defending so many other notorious uh, figures throughout the uh, history of this country, including the... Uh, Second wife, first wife of Donald Trump, first wife of Donald Trump, Ivana Trump, as a matter of fact. And uh, you'll hear that and more in this salute. Uh, it includes a video uh, of of Michael Kennedy done by his documentary filmmaking son and Jerry Goldstein from San Antonio winning the award in Kennedy's honor. Enjoy. Now, we have a very special event for you. Um, I've been a lawyer for 41 years, and I've looked up to... Uh, several lawyers, but some more than others, and um, some of my heroes are in the room. Uh, one of them recently passed away, Michael Kennedy, and we're going to talk about him. But Jerry Goldstein is about to re- uh, receive an award from Keith Strop. So I'm going to ask Alan to introduce Keith. Thank you. So after... 46 years, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, have been members of Normal. It's a family. People have lived and died over these two generations at least. I'm a non-lawyer, though I've had to work with thousands and thousands of lawyers across the country. There are 600 members of Normal who are lawyers in the legal committee. Many of them are very radical. Some of them are very sophisticated. In my life, I was only blessed to meet one person who more or less combined both of those, and and that was Michael J. Kennedy, 
um, the CEO of High Times Magazine, who passed this January. And so his son, who is a um, very gifted documentarist, has um, created a four and a half minute video. And as I was saying to Anna Safer Kennedy, Michael's daughter, I love my father. But I don't think I could even create a 15-second video that would reflect his life to an audience that would appreciate the scope of his life and the choices he made. So for those of us who are, say, I'm 50, so if you're older than I am, you'll probably appreciate some of the clients that Michael represented. For those of you who are under 50, you probably have no idea the significance of the people he represented in American politics. So um, we're going to show the video. We're going to bring up um, Eleonora and Anna. And then Keith will introduce Jerry, who is an excellent first recipient of this award because he is, in my mind, one of those only other lawyers I've met who is remarkably radical and incredibly sophisticated. And he's an excellent, apt first. um, Thank you, technophobe. I never thought I'd live long enough to see marijuana begin to become legal, and I'm very glad to have played a role in that because my best friend started High Times Magazine, and I kept it alive for him all for 40 years. There's High Times. But we haven't forgotten our prisoners of war. We're remembering them. And we're getting them out gradually. My basic view of the law was that anybody our government didn't like couldn't be all bad. So we represented criminals. We represented people accused of crime. And did it proudly and did it with a remarkable amount of success. So in terms of of the lawyers, the kind of lawyers we've worked with and the lawyers we hire, hired over the years and the ones we've helped train or mentor, learned from, have all had one thing in common. They were progressive human beings first. They cared about the earth. They cared about humanity. They cared about the poor. They learned that from us. A lot of them today don't even remember the Vietnam War. But they remember that somebody stood up. Somebody stopped that war. Somebody was willing to fight. Fight the racism. Fight the sexism. Fight the paternalism, the imperialism that so profoundly permeates this country and unfortunately still does. And the best place to fight them is in the courtrooms. Because in the courtrooms, you get a jury. Now, a lot of the jurors are are afraid and cowed and scared and what have you, but you tell them a story, even though you're condemning the government, and there's a big difference between condemning the government and condemning our country, which we happen to love, just hate the fucking government, you know? 
Big difference. And a lot of the young people got that. Coming out of the law schools then, I mean, we had a small practice in San Francisco at the time, and another, we always kind of stayed small. But the number of young people who wanted to come would come out of law school and say, come on, can we work for, we'll work for free. We just want to do what you do. We want to fight the government toe-to-toe in court. We want to go to trial. We want to talk to juries. We want to be able to tell stories the way you do. So, I got some gifts. I mean, I've got the gifts of privilege. Not only my white skin, privilege. The gifts of gab and what have you that we have, but the, the gift to be able to see beyond the short run, to know that it's not just about making today's buck. It's not about that. It's that we're all really in this together and we'll never rise higher than the lowest. And when a lawyer understands that, then a lawyer can be trusted not just to the extent of the law, but can be trusted completely. Okay? Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. So um, Keith can. Um, well, I'll bring up Eleonora and uh, and uh, Anna to uh, relate the life and times of Michael, and for us to acknowledge that in the 46 years that Normal's been around, High Times has been the most faithful and and uh, supportive corporation we've ever encountered. Normal would not be here today if it wasn't for the Trans High Corporation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, Keith, Normal. Many people have strong convictions, but is the rare person who actually lived and loved their convictions. Michael, he was one. Michael stood up for those he felt were treated unfairly by the system and fighting to ensure that all of us, no matter where we came from, had the rights we were entitled to as citizens. It's hard for me to imagine a world without him. For 40 years, he has played defense against prohibition of cannabis, along with his beloved Normal and Jerry Goldstein. Quote, teach the world to grow and defend those with the courage to take advantage of the gifts of cannabis, end quote. Now, with the end of prohibition firmly in our grasp, Michael, along with Normal in High Times, led the offense to create a free cannabis market for all adults, freedom for the prisoners of the war and marijuana, who he cared about the most, and full access for all who can benefit from the medical blessings of cannabis. He would say, Jerry Goldstein is overqualified for this award. He, he respected and loved him. Their work together and support of Normal is legendary. 
He is so pleased. I know he's watching, and he's so pleased, Jerry. I found his notes for a very old Orman uh, convention of normal. I think it probably was in the late 70s. And here's what he said, quote, in his speech. I hope you remember this, Keith. Help others where you can. Fuck the begrudgers and the government. Guard your liberty by exercising it. Fight for your rights and others. If the reason you can't find what you're looking for, it's because you're not looking where it is. Slap a racist every chance you get. (laughs) Respect the young, the old first, and then the workers. Trust anyone you want, but cut the cards. Prison is the last frontier of racism and fascism. I am a Native American, a slave, an African American, an immigrant, a working trespasser. I am a criminal. Learn to forgive. Forgetting is optional. Michael was a rebel and a rogue, and I was proud to be his partner. Thank you so much. My father talked about Jerry and Keith for so many years with such love and respect. Um, His message was about endurance. His life was always a battle on behalf of others, and I know that Jerry and Normal will continue his legacy. In his own words, my father wrote, Normal is the only grassroots organization in the country devoted to the consumer. Normal is the only organization that actually believes in the Declaration of Independence, our inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I am proud to be in the presence of an organization that has continued to support and has never abandoned the efforts of freedom fighters, responsible consumers, and the medical cannabis community. My father would be so proud that this award is being given in his name. Thank you. Thank both of you. Um, first off, I just want to underscore that I, in my life, uh, I don't think I've ever met a grander criminal defense lawyer uh, than Michael Kennedy. He was brilliant. He was classy. He was effective. He was radical as hell. Uh, During those early years that some of you younger folks may not remember, he represented Black Panthers, he represented Abby Hoffman, he represented people in the Indian Reservation that were being persecuted. Any case that he could identify where people were unpopular, were fighting the government, didn't have privilege, Michael couldn't say no. And boy, did he accomplish a lot. Well, and which is why it is so appropriate that on the first uh, award of the Michael Kennedy Social Justice Award would be my oldest and dearest friend, Jerry Goldstein. When we started normal in 1970, Texas had the worst laws in the country and they were giving out the longest sentences. So instinctively, we knew that if we were going to start to have an impact, we'd better go to the worst place in the country and start raising hell. And... It wasn't long before I had made contact with my friend Jerry Goldstein. We had both been draft evaders. Um, he was, at that point, representing a lot more draft evaders and others who were causing trouble in Texas. So I went down to Texas, and before long, Jerry had arranged for us to take the New York Times, the Associated Press, and numerous other 
big news organizations through the Texas prison system to interview a dozen or more of nonviolent marijuana offenders serving 10 and 20 and 30 years in prison. The New York Times ran a front page magazine article on it. Uh, AP, it went nationwide. You can imagine in those years what that meant. And what I principally learned from Jerry during those early years was to have no fear. This man has never shown fear. He stands up to power. He stands up to those who would oppress us without any concern of what it's going to do to his life or his career, etc. And as a result, he has become perhaps one of the top two or three criminal defense lawyers in the nation. Let me give you a few of his credentials. He's a past president of NACDL, which is the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Bar Association for Lawyers who specialize in criminal defense, past president of the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers. He won Normal's Al Horn Award. He won the Robert Heaney Award from NACDL for for Outstanding Criminal Defense Lawyer in the U.S. He, He won the Outstanding CDL of Texas State Bar, and he won the John Henry Falk Civil Liberties Award of the Year from ACLU. Please welcome a brilliant, committed man of social justice, Gerald H. Goldstein. By the, by, but, by the way, before, let me read the inscription on his award, if I might. It says, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws awards Normal's Michael J. Kennedy Social Justice Award for 2016 to Gerald H. Goldstein. In recognition of your lifetime commitment to achieving social justice for all people, including especially those without the resources or social standing to achieve achieve justice on their own. Your willingness to speak for the underdog, the disenfranchised, and the unpopular, like Michael Kennedy himself, has defined your exemplary personal and professional life. Thank you, Keith, for those nice lies. I particularly on today want to uh, thank and pay my respect to Eleonora, who is the, in my estimation, the first lady of my profession, and to the lovely Miss Anna, their daughter. I can't tell you how incredibly flattered I am Uh, knowing full well that I'm probably one of the least deserving in this room, uh, but by far the most appreciative. What makes this award so meaningful and poignant to me is the award's namesake. Michael Kennedy was so many different things to so many different people. A devoted father, a loving and dedicated husband who was your constant companion throughout 47 years, never spending a night away from one another. Your partnership 
Eleonora was an example and has continued to be an example to so many of our fellow travelers, including my bride, Christine, and I, who've been married for 47 years. A coincidence, I'm sure. Michael was my cherished friend and confidant. But more importantly, he was the patron saint of all that was good and remains exciting and worthwhile to all the rest of us. No one could hold a candle to your husband. He was always the brightest bulb in the room. But most importantly to my profession, Michael Kennedy was a giant among midgets in my profession. His strident voice, his righteous tone, his vibrant spirit filled every courtroom he stepped into. He was a sight to behold. Uh, uh, the spectacle was always worth the price of admission. Michael Kennedy owned every courtroom and, quite frankly, every barroom he stepped into. In the 40 years I knew Michael, and I knew him well, we shared podiums together. We shared a lot of courtrooms and way too many barrooms. From one end of this country to the other. But Michael never failed to excite. He never failed to inspire me and those around him. He never failed to entertain. He never failed to move us from where we were to a better place. His client list, you saw some of them speaks volumes, and to this young audience, look these up. Play with your computers. Rennie Davis, the Chicago 8. Gene Harris, John Gotti, Huey Newton, Timothy Leary, Bernardine Dorn, Cesar Chavez, Jim Mitchell of the famous O'Hare, O'Neill, O'Farrell Theater. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Hunter used to call it the, uh, the absolute pantheon of sex trade uh, in America. Uh, one of Hunter's books was Night Manager, about his term working at the O'Farrell. Ivana Trump, where your husband uh, uh, struck a blow for the women in this country and outed the Donald as the lying sack of shit that we know him to be today. <laughs> Words... Words like Black Panthers, Weather Underground, the Pizza Connection Connection case, Wounded Knee, High Times Magazine, all bear Michael's signature and will remain. What brought us together, interestingly enough, was you, Keith. Uh, what the glue that keeps us together is you, Keith, and normal. Uh, and a recognition that, not to worry, that kind of spurs us all on. I usually have it near my crotch because <laughs> my wife tells me that's the least sensitive place on my body. There's, just thank God it wasn't mine, which is usually the case. Yes, Your Honor. There was a 
recognition among all of us youngsters 40 years ago or so that our draconian drug laws in this country were oppressing an entire generation. They were criminalizing and imprisoning our youth, particularly those of color, the disadvantaged, the disillusioned, and often the best and the brightest we had. There was a recognition among us in those early years of what a waste, what a terrible waste of our youth, what a terrible waste of our resources this drug war had become. Almost 50 grand a year per bed per inmate. We could be sending the fuckers to Harvard. This is a, ser a serious and stupid waste of our economic resources and our talent and our efforts. And what compounds that is that that wasn't enough. No, we stigmatize these individuals, make them convicted felons, ensure that they can't get a, a job, a decent job, make sure they can't get public housing, make sure they can't get medical care, and then we wonder why we have a problem with recidivism. What brings me here and what makes me the proudest is throughout this journey, Michael Kennedy was the Pied Piper of a band of young upstarts. Young upstarts with names like Tiger and Stepanian. Young upstarts who are not willing to accept the status quo. Young upstarts who are not willing to tolerate our society's intolerance any longer. Michael Kennedy gave me and this band of young upstarts the courage to stand up to stand up against intolerance, to stand up against injustice wherever and whenever it raised its ugly head. Michael's life in the law was a testament to the best tradition of our profession. He was a constant reminder that how we treat the least of us is how ultimately we can expect to be treated ourselves. It has been an honor for the past 40 or so years, to call Michael Kennedy my able colleague and my dearest friend. I've never had a prouder moment than to stand here and receive this award in his end, in his name. Thank you. And thank you all. That's Gerald Goldstein, Jerry Goldstein, winning the first ever normal Michael J. Kennedy Human Rights Award. And uh, the tribute to Michael Kennedy, another great defense lawyer, another freedom fighter, without whom High Times Magazine would not have survived, would not exist. I am so privileged to get the opportunity to meet some of these giants in our movement, and it's my pleasure and honor to bring their words to you here on the Russ Belleville Show. Stay tuned. We've got more wisdom coming for you in Hour 2. Dr. Harry Levine and Dr. John Getman, Lauren Siegel from Marijuana Arrests Project, they'll be talking about pot and the police in a post-prohibition world. For everyone here at CannabisRadio.com, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. Hey, hey, hey,
This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Where you can toke. I inhale. Uh, frequently. Or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can toke and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon, at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of Gonza Graphics, the sultan of Sativa Statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. All right, welcome back, Tokers and Toquettes. Radical Russ here. Coming to you live from beautiful legal potland, Oregon. It's the weekend. It's the Memorial Day weekend, even. And, of course, that means that we've got a federal holiday. So there will be no show on Monday. No show on Monday, as it is Memorial Day, and we'll be taking that day off. So no cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch, either. That's right. We'll have to uh, take that day off because it is Memorial Day. I'll be making my way to Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, I'll be in Scottsdale, but what's the difference, right? I'll be in Scottsdale uh, for a Tuesday show. And on Tuesday's show, our guest is going to be Becca Williams, and she's the host of a television show called Marijuana Straight Talk that's doing really great on the uh, alternative uh, TV, the Roku, I guess it is. So we'll talk to Becca on Tuesday. And then there will be no show on Wednesday, because on Wednesday, I'll be flying to Aspen for the Aspen Legal Seminar. And then we'll bring you shows on Thursday and Friday from Aspen. Saturday, I'll be at Hunter Thompson's place (laughs) at a jam session. And uh, then we'll bring you the highlights (laughs) highlights of that on Monday. I'm just laughing because I can imagine some of you out there going, Oh, go into Hunter Thompson's place, you bastard. Yes, I know. It'll be like my fifth time, I think, uh, at Hunter's. Fourth or fifth, I think, at Hunter's place, and uh, no, it's the fifth time. The fourth time I'll be going uh, with my base to jam, so it's going to be a good time. And I'll bring you a lot of photos and a lot of uh, highlights from that. We'll interview a lot of great folks up there. 
So uh, also, while I was here in Portland, it's weird. I'm only here for three days. And uh, I got a call from Kyle Iboshi, uh, investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate here in Portland, Oregon. Now, I had last spoken with Iboshi as far as uh, the Burnside Burn last year. Last July, when we uh, packed the Burnside Bridge, and it, maybe I've talked to him since then. No, I, I have talked to him since then on, on some other story. I can't remember what it was. But it just so happened I'm in town, and it just so happened he was working on a story. So I got a chance to speak with him uh, this morning for a story that should be out in the uh, Portland media next week. It's embargoed, so I can't tell you much about it. I will tell you uh, it has to do with um, you know it still being federally illegal. And you know we talked a lot about that. And how, you know, I let him know how I think that the federal prohibition is pretty untenable at this point and how, you know, I was just in Washington, D.C. And uh, check out my High Times column today, by the way, HighTimes.com entitled Weed Winning in Washington, D.C., because I really think we are. I mean, just this week, we've had the House and the Senate pass the appropriations bill that allows the VA doctors to be able to discuss uh, medical marijuana with their patients in the medical marijuana states. We've had the state of Ohio move forward on passing, you know, legislative medical marijuana that does allow access to whole plant. We're actually making some progress again in medical marijuana states. And we had, of course, the news that we broke uh, of Congressman Rohrabacher, a GOP congressman becoming the first in the current Congress and in the past 30 years to admit to using a medical marijuana pro, uh, product. And an update on that story, by the way, right? Because everybody made hay about Rohrabacher admitting that he used a medical cannabis product, and that's federally illegal. Turns out that Rohrabacher, I read this in the Orange County Register today, turns out that Rohrabacher also does not have a California doctor's recommendation. So he was breaking California law as well. <laughs> so when you got Republicans admitting that they're breaking state and federal laws, uh, the time that we can take those laws seriously is beginning to fade. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about that. The end of federal prohibition when we return. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. We don't limit how much you smoke, and we don't limit where you listen. Cannabis Radio is now on iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber. Doctor's orders. Less heat, more flavor. It's time to hemp present. 
I am going to titillate your audio orifices with weekly radio rendezvous with some of the premier movers, shakers, and history makers of the cannabis community. Radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak. I will be putting out a call to action on issues of the day and putting your interests under the big lights as I provide cannabis commentary and weekly interviews that go straight for the nugular. Marijuana! Hemp presents only on Cannabis Radio. Sweet sativa. Get the latest updates on the Russ Belleville Show by following Radical Russ on Twitter and liking the Russ Belleville Show on Facebook. Are you playing an acoustic guitar but want to be louder without an amp? Try a resonator guitar. The fingerboard extension has national resophonic and other resonators, square necks and round necks. Stop by the fingerboard extension downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. Go wild hog in the woods. Most of us pirates, we go on vacation to North Dakota, you know, because they've got a town called Argusville. What are you smoking there, boy? This is Dan Michaels from danmichaelsaudio.com, and you're listening to Radical Russ on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. Just about nine after the hour, and we were discussing the end of federal marijuana prohibition what are what are the chances that this could happen trying to put on you know trying to read the crystal ball on this is a little bit difficult when we're in the middle of a presidential election season because in in a in a regular scenario in a, in a real world kind of prediction i would say that marijuana legalization is pretty much going to happen that with 2016, we're going to have at least three more legal states that pass. I'll put my money on California and Nevada and Maine, I think for sure, can pass their legalization. Arizona, I don't know. That's <laughs> I'd like to see Arizona pass it, considering that I have a lot of work in Arizona. But, uh, boy, I don't know. They barely passed medical marijuana. And Massachusetts is looking like a wobbler now. I mean, they've got 46% for, 43% against. That's a lot of undecided still. And a lot of their top, uh, you know, uh, people in the state, the governor, the mayor of Boston, a bunch of police chiefs and stuff, lining up some pretty visible opposition to it. But I, I think we can at least get three. Oh, and Michigan, doggone it, Michigan. Uh, they were already scraping to possibly make the ballot in Michigan. Uh, before the Michigan uh, court or the Michigan bill went in about uh, the 180 days, that just got uh, dropped on them. It's it's a complex thing, but basically the way it works is this. When you collect signatures in Michigan, you have 180 days to collect signatures. And the way that it was was that any signature you collect within 180 days, so long as it was a valid signature, was a valid signature. But after, if it was older than 180 days, you had to go and prove that it was still a valid signature, okay? So, like, if it was 190 days old, this signature, the the theory was, well, they might have moved since then. It might not be the right precinct. They might not be a registered voter anymore, et cetera, right? But you at the campaign, you could still go prove it. 
Now, it's a laborious process, mostly involving, you know, going to clerks and looking at paper records. But there's also electronic records in places in Michigan. And the activists there were fighting for, hey, could we have better access to these electronic records? Because then we could more easily prove that some of these older, you know, so-called spoiled signatures, you know, later than 180 days, we could rescue some of those signatures. And so the Michigan legislature said, no, 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 we're going to fix that. We're going to make it so it has to be 180 days. You can't go back and look it up. Or if you do, if you want to go prove it, you have to go to the offices and look it up by paper, which is you know prohibitively expensive for how many votes you could possibly flip or signatures you could possibly gain, I should say. So uh, once again, we see our elected officials trying to make democracy harder. And that, this is something that's just kind of an, uh, happening all over the country in all sorts of issues that is really frustrating. And it's this continued move to try to disenfranchise people, especially, you know, African-Americans, uh, liberal leaning voters, the young things like making it. So the people who I think Michael Moore was talking about this on TV the other day about how the kids that go to school at the university of Michigan, uh, can't vote from university of Michigan. They have to go vote back in their home district, wherever that might be. Some of these kids are out of state students. Some of them have to travel hundreds of miles as Michigan's a big state to get back home to be able to vote. Why do we keep making it harder for people to vote? We should, it's like the default should be make it easy to vote. Shouldn't it be even in a, like George Carlin once said, even in a fake democracy, shouldn't we get what we want some of the time? (laughs) I mean, this continued disenfranchisement and making it more and more difficult for people to vote. Now, Oregon's gone the other direction. I believe Kate Brown, our governor signed that uh, motor voter thing where if you register your, you know, get your your uh, driver's license. You automatically register to vote. I think is the deal. And of course, we do all our voting by mail, which helps uh, voter participation a lot because we send out a uh, a guide, a big you know, sixty seventy page guide uh, for the voters. You have time to look over all the candidates. I mean, how many times you go to vote in your state, and you get down to like you know, city commissioner, county sheriff prosecuting attorney water district right you get down to these these low level races and these are just names on a ballot to you they don't mean jack you don't know these people you have no idea what they stand for you don't no idea you might see a republican or a democrat behind their name or a green or a lib or whatever it might be but besides that you don't know what their positions are what they stand for what their experience is unless you went and took the time beforehand to you know, look up on some website who's going to be running and then go to every website for those people and try to find out what they stand for. At least for those that have websites, some of them don't. Well, here in Oregon, they mail it to you. You get a book. You get a book mailed to you with every candidate's name, their background, uh, their own statements as far as what they stand for. Every ballot initiative and tax levy and fee hike and everything we vote on has a a summary statement, has has arguments for it, arguments against it. And you get this weeks in advance. You get it weeks in advance and you can look over it and you can write in it and highlight, oh, I'm going to vote for this guy. Oh, well, this X, don't get, no, that's bad, right? You can mark it up. And then eventually you get your ballot mailed to you. I think it's like three weeks before the election or something like that. You get your ballot mailed to you. It's one of them little uh, bubble sheet kind of things. You fill in the oval. 
You can go back to your highlighted book and read through and go, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah, that ballot. Oh, yeah, that initiative, right? And mark up your ballot, put it in a little secrecy envelope, sign the outside of that, put that in another envelope, put a stamp on it, drop it in the mail, boom, you voted. And you made informed decisions, even down to these low-level races and obscure county bond and school bond elections. You made informed decisions, or at least you had the opportunity to make those informed decisions. This is what needs to happen on a nationwide level. You know, one of the, I, I've gotten some heat because I'm kind of, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of uh, reads on my Bernie or Bust uh, posts on Huffington Post. And I've been salivating at this idea of the Bernie and Trump debate. That would be legendary. Now Trump's chickening out, I hear. A couple of tech companies put up the, the 10 or $20 million that he was demanding for charity. And they called his bluff. Okay, yeah, $20 million? Sure, let's do it. And so, no, I'm backing out because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be seemly to debate the second-place finisher. You know, because Trump's all about, you know, <laughs> the way things, you know, the appearances must matter to him, right? So, wouldn't be seemly. Sure, right. No, it's because he'd get his ass kicked in a debate. That's why. But this, uh, uh, this debate and, it, and this, this election cycle overall has just gotten me worried about this because one of the reasons I've got this Bernie or bus stance is because of all the problems we have in this country, none of them can make, we can't make meaningful movement on any of them without reforming the corruption of our system, without addressing the oligarchic and plutocratic nature of the system itself. I'm reminded of that uh, uh, brilliant editorial cartoon that's out. It's the Titanic. And on the back of the Titanic is Donald Trump pointing at the water saying, there are a lot of sharks in that water. We got to kill them all. In the middle of the Titanic up at the, uh, on the deck is Hillary Clinton saying, I know how to best pilot a ship. And on the front of the Titanic is Bernie pointing saying iceberg <laughs> and that's how it feels now that's how it feels and I, and I get so tired of the uh the scare tactic of oh what if a president trump what if there's a president trump and he's he's nominating the supreme court justices and he appoints chris christie as the attorney general yeah whatever and yeah those would be some pretty horrifying things to have happen but would they be any more horrifying than the next middle east war that hillary clinton gets us into and gets a bunch of uh young people killed in creates more terrorist enemies abroad. Would it be any worse than her putting the uh, wall street back in charge of the, the treasury and allowing the bankers to roam free and remain too big to fail bigger than they were the first time they failed and brought down the economy leading to a big market collapse that this time can't be blamed on a Bush leading perhaps to somebody who would make Trump even look preferable in the next election? Could it be any worse than her continuing to promote fracking worldwide, continuing to pump methane into the atmosphere from the leaks from the, uh, from the fracking, tap water being set afire? Could it be any worse than her imperial point of view revealed so tellingly this week 
by the inspector general's report that she just couldn't be bothered to follow the very rules she had set for email at the Department of State. Having been shown and called out on MSNBC of all channels by Andrea Mitchell of all people being called out as being a rank liar for the past few months about this situation. It's like, I always point back to that, you know, and people think it's this little thing. And I think it's so telling when you look at Hillary Clinton, that one time when she said she had to duck sniper fire in Bosnia, that to me distilled her character to me because not only did she lie about that to be self aggrandizing about how, you know, she's suffering the military, you know, like our soldiers do. But then when she was caught in the lie by videotaped evidence, she spun more lies about it saying, Oh, well there was a, I had to stop to see the little girl, but then I had to keep going. And even that wasn't true because she stopped and lingered with a whole bunch of people that to me distills it for me. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's me if you're asking me to vote for Hillary Clinton to stop Trump. I'm sorry, Dave. I just can't do that. Michael in our chat room says, if the Dems keep going with Clinton, it will be a President Trump. I agree. The only way Trump can win is if uh, the Democrats nominate the only candidate he can possibly beat. All right. When we come back, police and pot from the normal conference. Stick around. Maui Wowie. Acapulco Gold, California Kush. Our strains stretch everywhere, too. This is the Cannabis Radio Network. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. It's time for Cannabis Facts About Alzheimer's from Robert Platshorn's TheSilverTour.org. This message is supported by our donors and Hemp, Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. A new Florida study in the journal Molecular and Cellular Neuroscience found that cannabis promotes the growth of healthy new brain tissue. It can slow the effects of Alzheimer's and may, in fact, be able to halt it entirely. A long-term study by Ohio State University's professor Gary Wink concludes that people who regularly use marijuana get Alzheimer's at a much lower rate than others. This was Cannabis Facts from thesilvertour.org, an educational nonprofit supported by our donors and Hemp Inc., a public company poised to lead America's hemp revolution at hempinc.com. The Russ Belleville Show, providing dictionaries to drug czars since 2009. Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome.
You're tuned into the Russ Belleville Show, the voice of the marijuana nation, only on CannabisRadio.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we return you to the uh, normal conference that took place Monday in Washington, D.C., a great panel on police and pot that features Chris Goldstein from Philly Normal, Dr. Harry Levine from Queens College, Dr. John Getman, who was a normal director and now is with Shenandoah University, and Lauren Siegel, who heads up the MarijuanaArrests.com website. Some illuminating statistics and information from some well-informed panelists. Enjoy. Today, this afternoon, we really have uh, a quite incredible panel here today. Um, Everyone you're going to hear from uh, today has been researching the marijuana arrest problem in the United States for several decades. You know, the police and authorities have never been really proud of how many marijuana arrests there are. 600,000, 700,000, 800,000. You know, in the 1990s, I used to look at arrest reports and the DEA and the federal government, they'd be pr- they would be proud of how much marijuana they seized. They'd be gleaming about the pounds of pot. But when it came to the arrests, they didn't have the same pride that they did for other current crimes out there. But they also didn't release much data. They didn't tell you where people were arrested, how old they are, what their gender or their race is. It wasn't until advocates within Normal and within the marijuana reform community started doing the hard analysis of this crime information that we started to get a handle on how many cannabis consumers were suffering under prohibition every year. And you might take it for granted, you know, when you see that number come out from National Normal, Paul will put out a press release, the FBI Uniform Crime Report says 800,000 people were arrested. Well, even in there, when you open the Uniform Crime Report, There's no number that says that. It says there were X amount of drug arrests and 24.68% were for marijuana. And you've got to sit there and do the math yourself. So what what I'm getting here is that we've got, we have John Getman's here today. He's a former director of National Normal. He has been researching not only marijuana arrest information over the years, but he has done the hard research to project the economic impact of prohibition on states and the country, and how we can move away from that. Also with us today is Lauren Siegel and Harry Levine. They co-founded the Marijuana Arrest Project to analyze arrest data. Harry is at the uh, City University of New York, Queens College, and it was his landmark analysis of New York City's marijuana arrests. And then going further, because Harry actually, he didn't just look at the data, he actually went out and talked to the cops and, and tried to figure out like why so many people were getting arrested in New York City and why the racial disparity is where it is today. So all of our panelists today brought you what many of us can you know, when, when you hear those numbers about arrests, when you hear that there's a racial disparity to prohibition, this is a given today. This is a, a major part of our movement towards changing these laws. This is what motivates politicians. I've seen it in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia. They want to solve these problems. But again, we didn't get here for no reason. This data isn't easy. It takes hard work, often years of work, often filing uh, open public records acts and FOIA requests and digging through state data to come up with these numbers. So we're going to start out today, and this is fascinating stuff because at the end of the day, it's not just numbers. Every one of these numbers, when you talk about arrests, is a cannabis consumer. 
somebody who doesn't deserve to be put into handcuffs, somebody who should be living a free life with great liberty in this country, not be stepped on by the state. So I'm going to start with John. We're going to move to Lauren and Harry, and then I'll uh, clean up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. We changed the order. We're starting with Harry. Then we're going to have John. Then we're going to have Lauren. I think I got it right. All right. So we'll start with Harry Levine, City University of New York. Harry, welcome. pretty loud. Maybe, I, maybe you don't need, let's say we're recording this or something. Yeah. Uh, what a shame. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, my name is Harry Levine. Uh, if you Google my name, it's the first Harry Levine that comes up. Um, <laughs> my, academic, my academic website. Um, with Lauren Siegel over there, we run a thing called the Marijuana Arrest Research Project. If you Google marijuana arrests, that website comes up. And, and uh, all, all we can do is talk a little, about a little bit today. Uh, there's lots more stuff on the website. Um, anybody here been arrested? How many people here have been arrested? Wow! Good for you! Good for you. Rested, people arrested for possessing marijuana or for marijuana. Nice work. Okay. Unusual for white people. Very nice. Um, uh, I, pu- I put some things on the, on the table. Um, one of them is a graph, a graph of the, um, the marijuana arrests. Uh, from 95 to 2010. Normal has a more complete one on its website. Um, but the climbing rests. They've tapered off the, or they've leveled off a little bit because of Colorado, Washington, and now Oregon and Alaska. Um, but in some places, and John Getman reports that uh, in, in Virginia, for example, they're continuing to rise over the last five, six, seven years. Uh, and lots of places they are as well. <clears throat> Everywhere in America, and this is from this amazing report by the ACLU, which is, exists on a PDF form you can find on the web and download. Um, everywhere in America, blacks um, and Latinos, but blacks from the FBI uh, data, are arrested at three, five, seven, ten times the rate of whites. Everywhere in America. In every major city, in every major county, in every state in America. It is a major scandalous racial justice question um, of an immense proportion. Some, some, as part of sort of the war on drugs, people call it the, the, the new civil rights movement. But the other thing to understand, and it's taken a while for people to grasp it, but it's happened, is that it is perhaps the issue of racial justice and the marijuana arrest 
is perhaps one of the most powerful weapons for marijuana reform and marijuana legalization um, that has happened in the last 20 years. The case for reforming marijuana, decriminalizing marijuana, and especially for ending marijuana prohibition um, can rest on a whole variety of things having to do with um, tax revenue, sensibility, freedom, um, economic development, industry. And those things by themselves may carry voters, but they don't carry legislators. And they don't carry elected officials. Not nearly enough. In America, unless something has a moral, uh, ethical component to it, it is hard to sell it to politicians. There has to be naked, fierce self-interest or some kind of, of political and ethical one. And the, and, the, and, the, and the scandal of marijuana arrests, the stone-cold racism of them, the 1950s segregation character of these things, um, digs into the heart, if they know about it, of, of timid, spineless, gutless liberals and even moderate conservatives. They look in the mirror and they say, I want to legalize marijuana because it's a racial justice issue. Not because it's going to make good tax revenue. Not because it's going to do this. Not because it's going to that because it's fair and right. Because it's a civil rights issue. And as a civil rights issue, it has moved. An amazing number of politicians already, including, including a number of congressmen, senators, elected officials, various parts of the United States, including people who, who, who've shown no evidence of ever having consciences before. Rahm Emanuel. Andrew Cuomo, um, and more. So I, as lobbyists, as potential lobbyists, as people who will speak on this issue, I, I urge you to include in your arsenal of material, in fact, put it at the, up at the front of the things you talk about to elected officials everywhere, anywhere, is to talk about the stone-cold racial injustice of the marijuana rights. Now, this, it's easy to say. we got a slide. This is on the web at our website, Marijuana Rest. I'll just show you a couple of things right now. Um, this is what the ACLU says. Targets communities of color. Blacks on average are more time. $3.6 billion a year spent, if you like, if you care about money. Marijuana, the, the, finding number one of the ACE, this 200-page book-length report, marijuana arrests count for over half of drug arrests. There's the same graph you just saw. Racial disparities across the United States, they've increased in recent years. There's a graph of the white rate and the black rate. It's stunning. There's the arrest rates, the same one you've got on your tables right now. 
the, the year after year after year. You, you can do this for every state. You can do this for every major city. Um, but with, with Chris, John, Lauren, and I, you have four of the people who have done more about this than anybody, and we, this, this kind of graph exists everywhere. Um, by region, it doesn't really matter much. Uh, big cities. Everywhere. Um, age. Majority of people 25 and under. 70% of them are, are 30 and under. You know, you get close to nearly 80% are 35 and under. There's young people being targeted, again, disproportionately, blacks and Latinos. White people use marijuana more than black people. Young white people, the people who are getting arrested, young people, white, young whites use marijuana more than blacks and more than Latinos. Absolute, stone cold, incontrovertible fact, United States government studies year after year after year after year after year. Whites use, young whites use marijuana more than blacks and Latinos. When you put in the old people, it evens out because there are a lot more old white people. Costs an immense amount of money, you already know that. States, some states, more blacks, more marijuana arrests. And the ACLU says to stop this, you've got to legalize the stuff. Period. End of story. Um, we have a piece that talks about some of this stuff that was in The Nation a couple years ago. I put copies of it on the table. We have another one here. We have another handout which we should give out to you. The thing to understand, and I guess I didn't talk about it, but it's a shame, but <coughs> is why the police do this. The, the single largest enemy and opponent of marijuana reform in the United States is law enforcement. It's not religious groups. It is not parents' groups. It's not anti-drug groups. Um, it's not competing businesses to the marijuana business. It's police. It's police and prosecutors. It's police departments. It's sheriff's departments. They're allies in prison guard units. And they like the marijuana arrests because they're good business. They, they, they have quotas. The cops have quotas to make. The ordinary cops like the quotas. They have their safe arrests. They're easy arrests. Marijuana possessors are not violent. They're not going to mess with somebody by and large. They go along peacefully. Unlike most of the people that the cops have to arrest, they, they are clean, meaning physically clean. They don't have HIV, they don't have AIDS, they don't have, have hepatitis, they don't have TB, mostly. Unlike drunks and junkies, they don't, they don't throw up on the, on the officer or in the squad car. When a cop arrests somebody, they are physically married to them, is the expression that's used. They, the arresting officer takes the fingerprints and photographs, um, they have to f touch them and so on. Uh, marijuana users are very highly uh, desirable arrestees. They have to spend several hours with them. They have to sit in the, in, the, in the police station with them. They may accompany them to court. The supervisors of cops like the marijuana arrests. Oh, then they get overtime, by, by, the, by the way. Make an arrest toward the end of a shift, and, and you can get three or four hours of time and a half overtime. In New York City, this is so well known that for years it is called, anybody know that expression? Collars for dollars. Collars for dollars. 
Making arrests toward the end of your shift is college for adults. In New York City, in Chicago, the most common form of arrest has been marijuana arrests. That's true in many police departments across the United States. Big business. Um, supervisors like the marijuana arrest. Why do supervisors like the marijuana arrest? The number one question facing a police supervisor at every single level, desk sergeant, lieutenant, squad commander, captain, whatever, is where the hell are my cops right now and what are they doing? And if they are doing low-level enforcement, if they're writing summonses of various kinds, and especially if they're making arrests, then you know where they are. They're generating paperwork. They're bringing somebody in. You have a record of where they have and what they've done. So, so the, the, they, you, the, the, the supervisors knows what the cop is doing. The, the chain goes up the chain of command all the way up to the top. Um, cops make overtime for making the arrest. The supervisors of the officers who make the, get the overtime, they get overtime. Not everywhere, but in Chicago and New York, they do. Um, there's a push that starts with the federal government. It goes to state, state, goes to counties, goes to local police departments to get as many people as possible into the system, meaning getting fingerprints and photographs on them. There is nothing that police departments can do that gets as many new people into the system as the big net of marijuana arrests, especially young people of color. Training cops. Six months of police academy, they put them out on the street, they know the law. If, if whenever somebody says cops don't know the law, it's bullshit. They absolutely know the law. They just disregard it. Um, but, but they don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to interact. And, and many police, new police, come from, from ex-urban areas, rural areas, outside suburban areas. They're not from cities. They're not... Um, they're often even not familiar with talking to, to black people and they've maybe never had any conversation with Latinos. Um, so what do you do with these cops? Well, what they do, and all police departments do it, and to some of big city police departments and smaller city departments, they put them in a group, they send them out to, police, to the local neighborhood, and they have them write summonses, do stop and frisks, and make low-level bullshit arrests. If they do, they, they get to touch people a lot. They have to talk to young teenagers like their same age as themselves a bunch. Um, they have to learn the dialect. They have to get somewhat savvy at doing this so they, so, so they don't get people pissed at them. Um, they do this every day for a year, and they sort of become cops. The psychopaths wash out. Um, some of them discover they hate it. Um, and uh, they sort of learn. And if they screw up, if they mess up the paperwork, it's just a marijuana arrest. Nobody cares. So the police and the law enforcement community are the major opponents of drug policy reform, of marijuana policy reform, of marijuana reform, including legal, including legalization, including decriminalization, including medical marijuana. They don't like any of it. There are some who, in this case, in, in Washington State, they got a number of police to be involved in and support the, the referendum, the ballot measure there uh, in 2012. But that's not going to happen in, in most places. They may step aside, but it's hard. So when you go onto Capitol Hill and when you go talk to people, talk about the racist marijuana arrests in America. 
and tell those politicians that they need to stop these damn things now. Okay, I have a slideshow. How do I how do I get to it? Ably so. Thank you. Hi there. Um, before I get into this, I have just a few acknowledgments I'd like to make, um, which have to do with why this subject is really starting to get attention. And at the front end of this, how I got into this data, um, well, first of all, I need to acknowledge how valuable it's been to and how important it is to me to be a member of Normal's community, uh, to have been working with this group for a long time and been influenced by it. And second of all, uh, Normal gave out an award before lunch to uh, the uh, Michael J. Kennedy Award for Social Justice. And uh, if it weren't for Michael Ke- well, Michael Kennedy was an integral part and an avid supporter of my work over the years. And frankly, because of Michael Kennedy, I was able to go, to, go get a, a Ph.D., and his support helped me complete my doctoral studies. What I learned there, uh, just some basic skills about working with data. Uh, I, my first big project getting out of, uh, of, of, of that was looking at marijuana arrests by race. And I did several reports on this topic. Normal helped publicize some of the early reports. And now we get to the back end of this. Um, I, I was making a mistake back then, a mistake that, that a lot of college students make. Now that I'm a professor, I kind of warn them about it. It's called the data dump. And I would pull together all this information and release it and then be disappointed it didn't quite get the attention that I thought it deserved. Um, but it got the attention of one guy, and that was Harry Levine. And Harry began to look into this issue in more detail and after a while, uh, he and Lauren and I started working together. And it's Harry who was the evangelist, if you will, who went out and started talking to more and more people and more and more groups and saying, look, this is important information. We've got to pay attention to this. And eventually, Harry had a uh, very interesting conversation over a period of time with the ACLU. And he brought my data to them, got them in touch with me. I gave them the whole, uh, here's the data dump. Take it all. And, and, and that produced the ACLU report. And while I'm very proud of, of, of my data getting some attention, uh, I'm especially grateful to Harry and Lauren for getting it attention and help making this such a, a widely recognized problem in our, in our justice system today. So please join me in applauding them for their help and support for this. All right, now, um, one of the things they taught me was... Um, no, no data dump. Be, be focused. <laughs> Keep it simple. Make it, you know, something people can grasp on. So I got a very simple little topic for you today, right now. And that's what happens to uh, the racial disparities in marijuana arrests when the arrests are really supposed to be winding down, when they're supposed to stop. What happens when we have significant reform? And so for this short little presentation, I'm going to compare uh, five states. And obviously Colorado, I'm sorry, I'm used to school where, you know, I Um, Okay, so test case, Virginia, no reform. Now, we have a reasonable marijuana possession offense 
penalty in Virginia. It's zero to 30 days and a $500 fine, but that doesn't keep them from making arrests, which I'll show you. Um, and then Massachusetts and California. Now, people think, oh, California, decrim state for a long time. Well, actually, as Harry has argued for years, no, it, it was still a criminal offense. They just wrote a court summons instead of making a custodial arrest. It's only in the last few years they changed it to what is known as a civil infraction, more like a parking ticket. And that's also what took place in Massachusetts. And, of course, we have Colorado and Washington where... Um, Really, to be honest, personal use quantities have been legalized as well as some commercial trade. And just to cut to the chase here, significant reforms in, in marijuana laws reduce arrest rates. They stop making as many arrests, absolutely. But it has no effect on the, well, not no effect, but the racial disparities in arrest remain. So changes in laws regarding the criminal status of personal use possession will reduce arrest rates for whites and blacks, but arrest rates for blacks remain significantly higher than for whites. And changes in laws about personal possession have little impact on arrest rates for marijuana sales and no impact on racial disparities in arrest rates for marijuana sales. Now, we're working with Uniform Crime Reporting Program data and U.S. Census data, and now we're going to see the same graph for five states, one for possession, one for sales. So in this graph, the uh, I'm not using the hairy colors. Harry has this great color scheme of pink bars for white arrest rates and, and black bars for black arrest rates, and, and I was just wanted to be different for a change. <laughs> so anyway... White rate is the green bar, black rate is the blue bar. And as you see over the last several years, the, uh, you know, the arrest rate for whites in Virginia for possession, eh, you know, came down for a, while, went up for a while, but it's been relatively stable. But you look at those blue bars and the arrest rate for blacks in Virginia for possession going up through 2014, the last year I have UCR data for, it's just climbing. Okay, down a little bit in 14 over 13. Still, significantly high. And, and, and if you look at the actual raw numbers, in uh, 2013, the entire increase in marijuana arrests in Virginia were black arrests. They're arresting more black folks every year. And the same thing holds for sales. Same trend. And you can really see the, the racial disparity issue by looking now at sales data particularly, and we're going to do this with the, the reform states, um, it's a little bit stronger of a disparity. And the same thing, there's, there's a continuity when it comes to the, the arrest rate for whites. And with blacks, really starting from, I guess, the year 2000, it's a steady increase. Now, we as a, as a group of advocates have stayed away from looking at sales, arrests over time, because our biggest argument has been that individuals who use marijuana aren't really breaking laws, that is, you know, things that are inherently bad. Um, and there's not as much public sympathy for people who are trying to make money off selling drugs. The issue, the reason why we need to look at sales more is the issue today is not sympathy for the individual drug seller, although there are outrageous cases there. But... It's the legal market versus the illegal market. And the, the data on sales arrests demonstrates that you can arrest 80,000, 90,000 people a year, which is pretty much what's going on these days. We still have an illegal market. 
And if you don't like legalization, you're saying, I prefer the illegal market. I prefer to outsource public policy objectives of reducing popular use of marijuana by keeping it criminal and letting criminals control the market. So the sales data is important for a lot of reasons. But here we have, I don't know if Virginia is a typical state, but in 2012 there were 17 states in which in the previous five years marijuana arrests on average went up every year. Now, Massachusetts. Hey, guess when the, the law was changed? <laughs> Big change there. Um, and, and in fact, uh, arrests in 2014 have really finally dropped. There have been like a couple thousand arrests per year in the last couple of years in Massachusetts. Now, in 14, it was finally dropped to like 500. They're finally getting the message and ending arrests. But see, not every marijuana possession offense has been reformed, decriminalized, uh, in the other states legalized, that there are certain thresholds. So in, in Massachusetts, with the civil infraction change, yeah, a big drop in the number of arrests, but there's still a disparity. That blue bar is still bigger than that white bar. And it may be lower arrests, and certainly less black folks, less African Americans are getting arrested than before, as less whites are getting arrested before, but still more blacks than whites when you get to arrest rates. And without, in an area of arrest where there's no reform in sales, again, tremendous racial disparity. Now, this does have to do with where the police are more aggressively doing enforcement activity, but that's not necessarily all, always uh, neighborhood policing, uh, broken windows philosophy of policing. That's also driving while black there's also, there's also different types of enforcement activity that tend to target areas or create circumstances in which blacks are arrested at a greater rate than whites. Okay, so Massachusetts, by the way, in many respects thought of as being a fairly liberal state, certainly referred to as a blue state in the popular dichotomy. And the same thing goes for California. Now, again, a decrim state but a court summons until 2011 when they were so freaked out about the prospect of legalization they made it a civil infraction. Now, again, the racial disparity there is strong before that change. It is not as great. Some credit to California. The disparity is not as great in these last four years, but it's still there. And by the way, lest you think this is, oh, Southern California, more conservative California, um, there's one point where I got the data for San Francisco. By the way, California, great data. They keep data. I like Donald Trump. I shouldn't do that. The, civil, the, um, the summonses in the city of San Francisco still demonstrated the racial disparity you see throughout the state. It's not a Southern California phenomenon. It's a statewide phenomenon. So again, once again, same pattern as in Massachusetts. Significant reform, racial disparity persists. And when it comes to sales, still there. Now, the number of uh, the arrest rate has been dropping for African Americans. Um, been dropping not as dramatically uh, for whites. But um, same trend. So, what do you think we're going to see with Colorado and Washington? I've already told you, and it's the same thing. Now, with Colorado, I did a report for the Drug Policy Alliance uh, about a year ago. 
looking at uh, the first data from 2013. And we're looking at data that the Colorado Bureau of Investigation supplied us. And I've got to get a little wonky for a second. This is all UCR data, Uniform Crime Reporting Program. There's a new arrest reporting program called NIBRS. I call it NIBRS, but I think that's a personal eccentricity. It's the National Incident-Based Reporting System, and it provides a lot more data about each incident in which an arrest is made. It gives more detailed data on the drugs, such as the amount of the drug that's being seized. Um, and the Colorado report on legalization that came out about a month or, month or two ago, they had NIBRS data. And they had the same findings there that I reported in the DPA report. Arrests are down, racial disparities persist. The reason I give you this little wonky background, the NIBRS data reports a higher number of arrests for possession than the UCR data. I haven't quite tracked that down yet, but on absolute numbers, the UCR data for example, for 2014, is about 5,000 possession arrests in Colorado. I think the uh, NIBRS data in the, in the Colorado reports like 7,000 arrests. So the absolute counts are off. Um, but what's important is the trends remain the same. And it's interesting that legalization in Colorado has had an effect on the number of arrests. And you can see how the arrest rates are significantly down in 2013, 2014 but they're not down by much. Now, again, Colorado, decrim state before legalization, and you see a, a, a dropping trend with the black arrest rate. That's good. Um, you see kind of a stable uh, arrest rate for whites, the green bars. Um, but still, the change after legalization is lower arrests, racial disparities persist. And, oh, gosh, they still make arrests for marijuana sales in Colorado. And, again, familiar trends here. you got to cut it off there here because we're out of time. But uh, that was John Getman, the former director of Normal, describing the before and after in racial disparities, uh, before and after legalization or decriminalization. Before him, you heard... Dr. Harry Levine from Queens College, who's one of the leading experts on the racial disparity in marijuana policing. The full panel will be available on my SoundCloud page later tonight, and I'll tweet out those links and share them on Facebook as well. Stay tuned because Stoner Jesus is coming up next live here on Cannabis Radio. For everyone here, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us from beautiful legal potland, Oregon. We'll talk to you Tuesday from Phoenix. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth.